We, uh, man, we hope you find RUF. We really do. No matter what you believe, no matter what your week looked like, no matter if you have doubts and questions, we hope that you find RUF really to be a safe place to examine the truth claims of Christianity, to figure out uh, if you think that they're true. And um, I want to start off by uh, admitting to you that um, I became a Harry Potter addict this summer. I decided to go Gryffindor. Um, I decided, uh, yeah, I decided I was just going to march through the summer. And I, I read five, uh, sometimes uh, in front of my screaming and fighting kids, so oblivious to them was I. And I want you to think about if, if I decided that I wanted to get into Harry Potter and I decided to start in book five, Order of Phoenix, right, what would you have told me? Some of you, some of you geeks would have really freaked out, but like most of you would have said, no, like, like don't do that. Sure, you might can get the gist of it, you might make sense of it a little bit, and you might still have a good read, but if you start in book five, you will miss so much. You'll miss so much of the beauty and the depth and the story of what is Harry Potter, And what if that principle actually holds true of the Bible? What if that principle actually holds true of the story of this world that we live in? Like, what if some of your good questions and maybe even your confusions about life and about Christianity, what about if you could find clarity by actually going back to the beginning? And so that's what we're going to do this semester. We're going back to Genesis, back to, if you will, season one, episode one. And we're really going to examine things and ask... If you, and dare to suggest that if you want to make sense of Christianity, if you need to be captivated by its beauty, if you want to make sense of your life and understand the true story that you live in, perhaps digesting the beginning, the foundation, is what you need. So let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, um, you are good. Uh, the Bible itself is a gift of your goodness because it means you've revealed yourself to us. And Lord, in a room this big um, and this hot, uh, it is, uh, it's going to be very easy uh, to be distracted. Uh, and that's okay. I don't think you ask us to leave our distractions. I don't think you ask us to leave our sin and our shame at the door. We can bring it to you. And so Lord, I pray that you would meet people uh, tonight who have questions, people who kind of think that it's a joke that they're here, and others who are wondering why they are, and you'd surprise us. Uh, by helping us to see that Jesus is better than we think, that he's a God of tremendous grace. We ask this in your son's name, I pray. Amen. All right, we're going to start in Genesis 1. It's on your handout, or if you have a Bible. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. I'm going to skip down to, uh, to verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. 
The grass withers, the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Okay, what I want us to consider tonight, and and hopefully briefly, uh, is who is the main character? What is the action of this story? And what should the audience response be? First, who is the main character, right? Verse 1, the Bible opens up with maybe a line that you've heard. In the beginning, God created. In other words, before there was anything, there was God and God alone. That's what the Bible claims. And then in the rest of chapter 1, God, He is the actor behind every single action verb. He's the subject. We get this beautiful picture of Him creating and separating and naming and appointing and delighting and and you can keep going. But the point is this. Every good story has a main character, right? Has a protagonist. And Genesis 1 lets us know that God is the main character. He's the main character of the Bible. And therefore, he's the main character of this world and this story that we live in. And look, this, this might seem like an obvious point. might seem elementary, I grant that. But, but I think it's very important. Because if God is the main character, what that means is that I'm not. And that you're not. That, that the Bible in this world is not primarily about me or you. And it's so easy to forget that. I, I was listening to a uh, to a This American Podcast, uh, This American Life podcast, just so uh, just so I'll be relatable. Um, and they were interviewing this guy. Is really he he had been trying to make it as an actor, and he had called a few break, breaks and had finally kind of made it in a few kind of low budget films and things like that. But uh, he was telling the story about how one time he was at a restaurant outside of it, and a couple of girls saw him and asked him for a picture. And he, you know, here he was. He was, he was flattered. He thought, I, I finally arrived. Like, I've made it. And so he kind of steps in between these two girls and he puts his, puts his arm around them and gets ready for the picture. And, and all of a sudden he senses it's kind of awkward and another girl's looking at him and, and holding out the camera and, and it clicks. And he steps out from the girls, grabs the camera and takes their picture in front of the, uh, in front of the restaurant and kind of hangs his head and, and, and you know, goes on. And that's funny because you kind of sense the awkwardness of losing perspective of like when you think that you're the focus, you think you're the big deal, the spotlight, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, like, <laughs> I'm just on the fringe, right? And it's funny, but, it, but if you zoom out from, on that principle, it becomes more serious because it's so natural. It's just second nature to think and to function as if life's about me, as if I'm the main character. Right? We don't have to tell ourselves to do that. It's natural to think that if God exists, or to say that He does, that He exists for me. And that other people exist for me. But from the beginning, we're seeing that this universe actually exists for God. And we exist for God and for His pleasure. Not the reverse. And I wonder if you've considered that just missing that foundational truth makes us go quickly awry. Right? How much of your bitterness and how much of our anger towards God, even though we're scared to admit it's towards God, right? Sometimes I think we're too scared to be honest. How often does your bitterness towards God stem from this fact? That God hasn't come through for me. Like He hasn't given me the life that I deserve. That He must not be 
Here's how self-righteous I am. He must not be seeing all these great things that I'm doing and giving me the life that I deserve. And when that kind of comes out of your mouth, don't you feel it? It's like the guy where like all of a sudden it clicks. Like, oh yeah, but I'm not the main character. God doesn't exist for me. I actually exist for him. And it kind of reorients everything. Or how many of you honestly like the way that you view good or bad or what you should or shouldn't do? Maybe some of you experienced this, you know, especially this last week. It is dictated simply by this. What is good is whatever I think is good and whatever I want to do. And what's bad is whatever I think and whatever I don't want to do. That the functioning reality is me and the main character. Not what's good and bad is whatever God thinks is good and bad. And whatever He names. And I know this point is elementary, but hold on to it. Because I think you're going to find this. I think you're going to find, as this kind of year goes on, that so much of the, of the mess and like the chaos of relationships whether it's like dating or friendships, you're going to realize it's because you feel that you have to be center stage. That you have to be the main character. And when we start in the wrong place, what we do is we we cut down any rival, right, by overt gossip or, or slander, or being kind of a little more subtle and we just sit back and, and kind of self-righteousness, we just judge other people kind of angry that their life is better because they're not as good as me. And it just makes a mess. And even in your dating relationships, I'm telling you, so many of the problems will start with this. You think your dating relationship is about me and my wants and my needs and what I deserve. And there becomes this reorienting that needs to happen where you realize that your girlfriend doesn't exist for your needs and your wants. She exists for God. And so the, the Bible, I think, confronts us with, with this. That just maybe we've all, we've all missed the foundational truth that life is about Him and not me. That you and I exist for the Lord and for His pleasure and not the other way around. So, okay, we, we've seen the main, who the main character is, how He makes all things to exist for Him. And to be honest, that, I think that kind of sounds scary. Like maybe that sounds egotistical. Like what kind of God would just create everything to revolve around him? So then comes the question, well, like what is this God like? And I think you can see what he's like through his actions, right? This is verse 2 through 25. I love all the facets of action you see from him. Look what he does first. First, he creates with immense power. He just speaks. He says, let there be light. And by the word of his power, there's light. Whatever he desires, whatever he speaks comes into existence. But not everything is immediate. You get this kind of beautiful picture of a process that's happening in creation as he makes everything beautiful. Right? We're told in verse 2 that God creates an earth that first is without form and void. And so you get this picture of this earth that is uninhabitable, that is kind of wilderness-like. It can't contain life. But then what happens? The Spirit hovers over the the waters, giving you this picture of, of a mama bird hovering over over her children. And you realize that his creation, like there's tenderness, there's care, there's love for it. And he brings about exactly what he wants. And he he brings this place of emptiness and chaos 
And he brings about order and beauty and life and structure and brings darkness into life. And so he creates with immense power. He brings about beauty. He gives life, right? As creation process unfolds, life comes to the world. He says, let the earth sprout vegetation and it starts coming. And then I love this. He just keeps announcing that this is good. This is good. And you see that he just delights in everything that he makes. He loves it. So here's what's amazing about the main character, the Lord of this universe. What's this God like? What's he into? The God of the Bible, did you hear it? He loves to create. He loves to share life. He loves to give life. He loves to bring pleasure and bring delight And what what we're being challenged with is that the God of this universe, at the core of the main character of this whole story, is is one who's a sharer, one who's a giver. He specializes in giving fullness to emptiness, lightness to darkness, life where there's death. And he loves to do so. And so consider this. If the main character of this world, if the foundation and central figure of this world who created and sustains the world, if his definition is that he's outward, that he's always giving, that he's other-centered, then maybe that's an explanation for why our self-absorption and our self-obsession, trying to be the main character, maybe that's why it's so exhausting. Right? Maybe that's why it leads to so much sin and breakdown. Because when my constant obsession is, how do I fit in? How do I compare to other people? Am I good enough, funny enough, smart enough? It's just exhausting and empty, right? Why? Well, perhaps it's because your obsession over yourself is against the fundamental reality of this world. The fabric of life of a God who is other-centered and is a giver. And maybe that's why feeling included feels like life. And I know that's what you want for us. You just want someone to acknowledge you and welcome you. And it feels like life because it's a taste of who God is. And it's why getting cut from a sorority really hurts. Because exclusion is against the reality of the God of this universe. And I'm not belittling that at all. It hurts. But here's something I think even more fascinating. Unlike other characters and stories, right? Other characters and stories, they always develop. As you kind of, right, Harry Potter develops as you read him. But the real God, the God of the Bible, cannot be developed. He's already perfect. His definition is that he's unchanging. Which means this. The actions that you see the Lord doing in Genesis chapter 1, that's just who he is. That's who he's always been. That's what he's... It means that who God is is that he loves to bring life. He loves to delight in the things that he made. He loves to redeem. His disposition has always been, always will be, that he's a sharer, that he's a giver. He can't change. And my question to you is, does that strike you as odd? Is that what you think God's disposition really is? Do you think he loves to love? Do you think he loves to save? Do you think he loves to delight in you and to take burdens off and to give life? Because I'm going to bet many of you feel like God's primary actions, his disposition, is that he loves to condemn, 
that he loves to put burdens on, that he loves to wear you down and to make you feel crummy. I just bet that's what most of your experience is. I bet a lot of you leave campus ministries and church and the primary feeling is that you feel crummy, that you feel beat down, that you feel weighed down with more burdens and maybe even more confused. And what about because in your Monday through Saturday you have this deep conviction that the God of this universe, his central reality is that he's a taker, that he takes life, that he adds burdens, that he's disappointed in you. I just know plenty of students every year that just finally quit Christianity because they're just worn out. Like they're tired of feeling guilty all, all the time. And so they're done. But what about if it isn't that God loves to condemn and, and, and loves to exclude and, and begrudgingly like saves and delights? What about if that's wrong? What about if who God is is he loves to include, he loves to give life? And he begrudgingly judges. He does. And it grieves him to exclude. And see, I know a lot of you have no clue what REF is about, and that's okay. But hear me say this. What REF is about is we hope as you keep coming, you will come face to face with who the real God is. That he's a God who delights to show mercy. He's a God who takes off burdens, not adds them on. He's a God who takes away shame, not heaps it on. That's who God is. That's his primary definition. So that's who the main character is. That's what he's like. What's the audience response? Quickly, right? All good stories try to elicit some response from the audience. So what's the proper response of meeting the main character of the Bible and of this world in Genesis 1? I think it's this. There's probably plenty you could do, but here's what I hope it is. I hope it's curious expectation. Because if this is who God is, one who loves to love and loves to share, I'm going to bet some of you right now, you're in one of two categories. Some of you are thinking, you're, you're kind of familiar with your Bible, and you're saying, mm, aren't we about to go through Genesis? Like, aren't we about to re- read about this worldwide flood? And like uh, Abraham maybe uh, trying to sacrifice his son Isaac. But I don't know. Be curious. Come back. Because what about if those stories, those true stories, actually show forth that God is a God of tremendous grace? What if that's what it actually is about? Because see, tonight really is on the beginning. It's only the beginning. Because where this story is headed is that God loves this world so much, He's going to come to this world and take on a body. The Word that speaks this world into existence, John 1 1 says the Word is going to become flesh and dwell among us. And Genesis 1 is kind of saying, You think God's loving and sharing? You haven't seen anything yet. Because where this story is going to climax is that He's going to take on flesh. He's going to walk the earth in a world that is broken and messed up because we're self absorbed and we've rebelled against Him and we don't like Him and we abuse His world and we abuse each other. And we've changed and the world changes, but God has not. And so I'd ask you, would you believe that God is so loving and so unchanging in His character that He'll actually take on flesh in the person of Jesus, take on a created body, and let our self-obsession put Him on a cross 
And he's so disposed to love, so disposed to save, he will take the penalty for all of our selfishness, all of our mess, so that you and I can be remade, so that you and I can be made beautiful and forgiven and know that the Lord of this universe delights in you. That's where we're headed. And see, I hope that interacts with the, with the other two of you, or with, with the other side. I think some of you, I hope you're here. I think some of you think religious one is just, Genesis one is like religious crazy talk. Right? That whatever struggle, that science has made you say, this is a bunch of baloney. And I, look, keep coming. Like, I'm glad you have those questions. But hear me say this. Whatever struggles you have with science and creation, you need to hear this. Believing that God created the whole universe by the word of his power, that's not, close to the, that's not even close to the craziest thing that Christians believe. It's not even close. The craziest thing that Christians believe is that the God of this universe loves this world that, it, that is so messed up that he came to this world, died, went to a grave, and was resurrected. And now sits in heaven and is at work to make you his bride. That's crazy. That's nuts. But if you start there, I don't know. Maybe your other questions might start unfolding. Because see, I... There's a story I heard about a um, guy who he had kind of he had left his wife, he had um, left his kids, and kind of just for months had kind of done whatever he wanted. And finally, he kind of agreed to kind of go back and see his pastor. And he walked into his office, and you know the pastor was about to talk to him, and he said, "Look, don't even start." He said, "Don't even start on this kind of like God stuff." He said, "Because I, look, I've done my research, I've studied science, and I know this." That if this whole universe were the size of the Astrodome, then our little planet would be basically a a speck of dust in the Astrodome. Which means that we as humans are simply just a particle on that dust in the Astrodome. And he said, it's ridiculous to think that if there is a God that you would care about a speck of dust in the Astrodome. And this pastor looked at him and said, well, you know what, I'm glad you said that. Because it's even crazier than that. What the real God has revealed to us is this even more loony than that. He loves us so much that he actually becomes a particle on the speck so that he can be united to you and love you and forgive you and redeem you. And that's good news. Genesis 1 is telling you that God is the actor. He's the main character. And he loves to bring life, which means... Here's my invitation. Here should be your response. I'm just going to ask you to receive. Receive. See, if he's the actor, it means who we are are the ones that are acted upon. The Bible is about God. It's not about you. And that means the proper response is to just take on the posture of an infant. Right? Having a kid, is, it's very, there's so many strange things about it. But watching a baby who's completely helpless, you realize the baby's only hope is to sit there and receive life and nourishment from the source of life, which is the baby's mom. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do all semester. And just be a receiver. And I think that's good news for many of you. Right? 
If you know that you have a lot of sin, if you know that you have a lot of shame and a lot of questions and a lot of confusion, and if he's the actor and we're the ones acted upon, then your response is just to come, to bring your sin, to bring your chaos, to bring your confusion, to bring your doubt, and dare to see that he really is a God that delights to show mercy. He's a God that delights to take away shame. He's a God who delights to love. And I bet you'll find that if you make God central, if you see that He matters most, the unbelievable flip side truth of that is that you'll realize you matter more than you ever dared dream. That's an invitation. Let me pray for us. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Genesis 1 that confronts us with a sobering reality that life isn't about us. Lord, (coughs) I've lived today as if even tonight's about me. And so, Lord, would you bring us out of that obsession with ourselves and help us to see a God who is full of grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I will.